This is a sermon podcast from Ashland First United Methodist Church in Ashland, Oregon. Visit us online at ashlandmethodist.org for more sermons like this, church information, and how to get involved. Ashland Methodist, a community of open hearts, open minds, and open doors. you've heard the loaves and fishes story, you've heard them all, right? Jesus, not very many loaves or fish, bunch of people, hungry, let's feed them all, right? But these gospel stories actually are very different from each other. There's like little nooks and crannies in there, and when you look in them, at least when I look in them, maybe I'm just, well, I know I'm a big geek, but still, it's so cool, the little places where the gospel writers have added small things or taken small things out, and in looking at the differences, asks us to consider why these changes are in place. So when we talked last week, we talked about how Mark and Matthew begin the story of the loaves and fishes with, with Herod's story of having arrested and executed John the Baptist. And Matthew and Mark go into specifics around this because they are talking to an audience, they are talking to a group of people who lived this history, primarily Judeans, primarily Judeans who are still actively practicing their faith and actively identified with their ethnicity, even though they may or may not be in Jerusalem. So these folks know their oral stories, and they know what Herod did, and Mark and Matthew do not sugarcoat the story, and that just leaves kind of a gash across the page of this terrible execution and in a very humiliating manner. And we talked about how Jesus withdraws and there's this sense of being troubled by this and this sense of challenge of honor that uh, Herod has just asserted his power and seems to have won out over the kingdom movement that John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth had been building. It's different in Luke. Luke still begins the story with Herod. But Luke gives us a different kind of Herod entirely. Luke's Herod is far more confused is the right word. Um, he's, he's in a way more open. Um, but what happens here is Herod talks about John the Baptist and Jesus in a way that calling is this Elijah? He, instead of the disciples saying what they've heard about from Herod, Herod's little part here in Luke is about what Herod has heard about from Jesus and the kingdom movement. Totally, Luke flips who's got the upper hand here. In fact, he uses uh, this word. Uh, Luke says that um, uh, he was confused. So that's a lovely English version, right? English um, doesn't necessarily give us, um, it's the word diaporero, uh, and it, is, it means utterly at a loss. And por- porero is, um, 
to, to not be able to like walk properly, kind of like, like you're so, like to lose your footing, like whoa, and you know. So he's literally, you can imagine, sort of confused and like totally at a loss and stumbling around. I can't even figure out what I'm, what is going on? That's how Luke portrays Herod. So different from the gash of violence we get from Matt and Mark. Well, that's interesting. And then we also get this uh, idea of uh, Elijah. It is Herod here who puts it together with um, John had been, was John raised from the dead? Was he really Elijah? Was this Elijah? Was Jesus John raised from the dead? Or was Jesus Elijah? So we have this completely separate non-believer outside of the kingdom movement being used by Luke to affirm the power of the kingdom movement instead of challenge it. Through this, like, whoa, what's going on? We get this, wow, the who's got the power? Luke flips it. And Luke, this is brilliant too, because Luke is teaching us about who Elijah is. Mark and Matthew, they don't need to teach anybody about who Elijah is. Elijah, according to the Malachi prophecy, is going to return before the final Messiah arises and brings about the kingdom of God on earth. That's why Jesus was uh, likened to Elijah. That's why John the Baptist was likened to Elijah. That's why Jesus raises the cup of Elijah at communion. But his hearers didn't really know about Elijah. Some of them did. Luke is a Gentile. That's the best that we know of him. And remember, this is a long time ago, and it's not history the way we do history now. But from what we know about him or think we know, Luke is a Gentile. Luke comes from the Greco-Roman cities of Antioch and probably Philippi. We think that uh, if Luke wasn't from Philippi, he served in Philippi because during the Acts narrative, he changes into a we pronoun when he talks about serving there, when he talks about Lydia. Well, Philipp Philippi is a Roman colony. It's, there was only a handful of Judeans that lived there that we know of, and there were Gentiles who were God-fearers, people who emulated and appreciated the Judean religion but weren't allowed to practice it because they were Gentiles. There are physical laws around Judaism as well as spiritual, mental, and emotional laws, and they couldn't bridge that boundary, which is part of why Christ's belief became such a radical and new thing. So, um, so, the, uh, so in Philippi, so we have Roman soldiers, and in Antioch, we have a real mix of people. We would, in the earliest days, not have had that many Judeans because the Judeans that would have been there would have been part of the diaspora. They would have been used to interfacing with Greeks. But after the Roman and Judean War, when no Judean was allowed to be in Jerusalem under pain of death, there were many that joined in 
and uh, with relatives who were already in Antioch, and that became a base of Christ believers. Antioch was a very, very, very early center where Christ belief came in. And in fact, in the Council of Jerusalem, which was with uh, the early apostles and Jesus' brothers, there's conversation about Antioch being uh, also a center where there are Christ believers. So this is like kind of an amazing thing. These things actually intersect. So all this is going on differently when we come to the loaves of fishes story in Luke. Um, we have uh, a different kind of setup. Instead of going into that story with Jesus needing to assert his honor and the miracles of the kingdom movement despite the gash of what happened with uh, Herod and John the Baptist, we have a, a growing, uh, growing movement. There's another thing that Luke does which I think is so cool is, and Mark actually does this too, but not Matthew. He brings forward, Matthew builds gloom, but uh, Luke builds this thought that uh, builds the movement so the uh, disciples had already been sent out by Jesus. They were sent out. Then we hear about Herod's like, whoa, what is going on? And then the disciples come back to report to Jesus all that they have done. How many people have been on a mission trip? Isn't it amazing when you come back and you try to tell people like what happened, like the holy moments that happened there. You know, this Jesus has sent out these disciples and they've come back and they're telling Jesus all about it. Like, wow, could you believe this happened and this happened? And I couldn't believe it. I felt power moving through my hands and my heart felt so open and I've never encountered that in someone else before. And I had prejudged them and it turned out they were marvelous. This is what's going on. The, the, uh, it's called the gossip network. That's the uh, terrible term for it. Uh, but this like... Uh, power of uh, uh, storytelling and, and sharing these stories over and over again. It's building. It's building. And that's where we are when we get loaves of fishes. The, the crowd, instead of uh, in Mark and Matthew, maybe being a little shaken or beaten down or not sure and following him and feeling a little lost. Remember, in Mark, Jesus said they were like lost sheep. Instead of that, here we have this like momentum building. They heard about where he was and they came. They came to see him. They came to hear him and he healed and he teaches. But one thing he doesn't do in this, which is so interesting and definitely nerdy. Sorry about that. But in both Mark and Matthew, something amazing happens to Jesus. As we have worked through the history and uh, of uh, Christ's belief from the beginning uh, to today. We have had a lot of conversation about who and what is Jesus who is called the Christ. What is that? Who is that? What part of him is divine? What part of him is human? What does that all mean? And um, both Matthew and Mark, when they talk about what happened to Jesus when he saw the crowds, is they said he was moved by compassion. Literally, his guts kind of stirred up and it's passive voice. Jesus is moved by compassion. A some other force or entity has moved in Jesus and caused a response. Now why would Luke 
drop that little bit of information. From the Western perspective, it's beautiful, right? From the Hebrew perspective, it's not a problem. Their God changes his mind. Their God uh, can act uh, uh, one way and then change course and do something different. Their God enters in with us in a way that is, sometimes I say a much hairier, sweatier God than a lot of us uh, in, in philosophy imagine to be. There's something visceral and beautiful and physical about the ancient Hebrew God who enters in with us, who sits beside us, who fills the house of worship with his presence. The Greeks had an unmoved mover. Their philosophy for the ultimate divine was this beautiful, perfect sphere that could not be touched or worked on, that could only maybe be glimpsed by the most wisest sage. Beyond the beyond the beyond. Their concept of the divine would not be moved by anything. It's the mover. When the Greek world and the uh, Semitic world and the Mesopotamian world and the African world all come together, it calls out from us second levels of thinking. We gotta get our head out of Sunday school sometimes. We all have this formative Sunday school training that gave it to us in a very pat and simple way. We need to do that for our children. Our children need to come away knowing that they are deeply loved by God, that their actions matter and have consequences in the world, and that they're called to act with love and care for others. There's really not a lot else that we are truly tasked with teaching children. They must know that. Why? Because someday they're going to be on their bike and they're going to fall and they're going to skin their knee and there's going to be three bullies around the corner. And they're going to need to know through the yelling and the taunting and the teasing that we humans will dish out. You know we will. That nobody can say anything to them that will diminish them before the eyes of God. In fact, in that moment, they can be vehicles for love and peace. When you are in the MRI machine, when it's scary and you begin to shake with a little bit of shock and cold, because that's what human bodies do, that you will know deep in the center of yourself that you are loved. That is our beginning place. If you are not there, we have work to do. But once we are there, the discipleship call is to go deeper. When you are rock solid, you can poke that trinity for everything it's got to offer you. Who ever heard of the trinity anyway? What a really weird thing to do. And yet it's so beautiful. If you can hold on to the love and surety in you, you can start asking questions of those Sunday school lessons. You can start asking about whether Christ is moved or not, or can be moved or not, whether that ruins your theology to imagine a God that can respond in love and care for others, or whether in your theology it has to be the God who is unmoved or nothing at all. Robust conversation is discipleship when you're a grown-up. <laughs> Actually, some of our kids at about eight years old ask us questions that we cannot answer, right? Am I right? 
So remember, always, you are loved, you are loved, then have the question answered. Always you are loved, always you are loved. So, thoughts and prayers. When we talk about a God who is moved, Jesus of Nazareth who is moved by compassion, what are our thoughts and prayers pointing to? What does that say about our belief? Do we believe we are helpless to make change? Do we believe in the power of prayer to change us and to call upon God? Thoughts and prayers is not an empty phrase. It's only become empty. And I encourage you to really reflect on what that means to you. If your thoughts direct you to puzzling out a problem and saying, I got to learn more about this. Those are good thoughts. If your prayers fill you with a sense, you know, God's got this. God is powerful and it's going to be okay. That's a good thing. If your prayers lead you to that little nudge inside you that says, hey, you know, I, I need you to be my hands here. I need you to get up and I need you to do something here. Then that's a good thing too. Do you believe that God is unmovable and so distant that nothing we do matters? Or do you believe that God stands beside you, that the Spirit fills you, and that even God can be moved? I have one more story to share. The little match girl. Now, I'm not going to tell the grim version because it is indeed grim, but a version that I sort of cobbled together in my own head when I was a kid based on different stories of it that I heard, and it stuck with me. The little match girl in my own story lives in France, uh, and she is a little French match girl, and she lives in a city that is filthy in about the early 1700s, mid-1700s. Can you tell I'm a historian? Sorry, nerd admitting it. And the little match girl is basically in rags. And her family uh, that used to get by, her father uh, had done laboring work, and he becomes disabled. And the only thing he can do is beg. And there's no social net. And um, now the children who are young have the same option. They have no other option but to beg. And the father can sit at home and put together these little matches with a top. And they can go out into the city and they can beg and they can sell the matches. Little girl, uh, these are debtor's prisons this time in France. There's no, there's no way out. If she steals something, she's as liable as anybody else. This is, this is a grim time we get this story where the little girl is sent out. She's in rags. She's barefoot. She has not been cared for. She does not have the proper clothing for wintertime. And this little barefoot one goes out into the cold anyway because to turn back in and face the wrath of her father and his misery and his abject helplessness at his own situation is less tolerable. And she has her little basket of matches. But she is probably hungry, beyond the ability to be an effective salesperson. And so she offers 
The match is for sale, and she gets no response. She is buffeted by the crowd one way and the other, which only makes her more dizzy. And she spins around, and she sees herself in the reflection of a window, and she notices her eyes are gold and brown. And she becomes suddenly overwhelmed and sick. And she sinks down and crawls backwards into the alley so that she won't be seen or kicked or have to watch the people across the way eating bread that she doesn't have any. And it's cold. And with nothing now to do, she recognizes how cold it is. And she strikes the match. And there's light there. In the dark alley, a little light shines, and it's warm. It's so warm. She's almost mesmerizing, and she stares at it, and it fizzles out. And she can't help herself. She had to strike again. It was so perfect and so beautiful and so warm just for a minute. And she remembers the loving embraces of her mother. And then... In the reflection of the light in her eyes, she sees her grandmother, and she notices they have the same golden brown eyes. And the light goes out, and she strikes the next match, and she swears her grandmother comes a little closer, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And there, suddenly, everything is really beautiful. It's like everything has stopped, and suddenly she's not cold anymore. She feels so warm, and her grandmother just reaches down and pick her up, and she is safe, and she's not hurting anymore, and she is taken up with the angels into heaven. There are stories that are designed to move us. We can't feed that little girl with thoughts and prayers. We can't change the unfairness of her life that way. Jesus didn't try to just give thoughts and prayers. The loaves of the fishes was his action after being moved with compassion. We are in the midst of stewardship. I love it because it brings us together. It pools what we have. My resources are this big, but our resources make a real difference. When we give, this church is good with what it gets. It uses that to do good in the world and to make a difference. We can make a difference. Our thoughts and prayers that move us and lead us to action make a difference. Amen. Let us reflect for a moment in silence. <laughs>